0: Lord God, again, we thank you for this time, and we thank you that we are given the chance to give back to you, uh, that you give us that ability that you provide for us, not only what we need each day, but even extra, so that we can come back and bring an offering to you. Lord, we rejoice in that. We give thanks for that. Help us now as we turn to your word. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John, chapter 20. And while you're flipping there, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever been blindsided by something? Now, that's when something, if you're not familiar with the term, that's when something seemingly comes out of nowhere and it catches you completely and totally off guard. Sometimes it's a major life event like a a medical diagnosis or a natural disaster striking near you or someone you know or just on the news. Sometimes it's something much smaller. It's a small issue. You take a sip of sweet tea to discover that it's unsweet or vice versa. Sometimes you're blindsided by good things. Surprise parties, family visits, gifts. Really all depends on what the cause of your shock is. What is it that has blindsided you? Is it good? Is it bad? Well, Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene were blindsided by something early one Sunday morning. All of Jesus' disciples witnessed something they could not believe at first. And yet it was something that they were told specifically that was going to happen. The event was not even on their radar until they ran to the tomb of Jesus and they saw that it was empty. And when they saw that, they believed. So their response in that moment must be our response, too. So because Jesus is risen, you must believe. So with that, let's read the first 10 verses of John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple Being blindsided by something. So as we read through this text, there's a progression from hopelessness to belief. And we have to remember the state of grief and depression that the disciples were sitting under. Their leader, the one they understood to be the Messiah, had been brutally crucified as if he was a hardened criminal. Not only that, but one of their own brothers was the betrayer for this event. Judas Iscariot, who had walked with the disciples through everything, who had been there from the beginning, who was undoubtedly a friend to many of them, gave up their masters for a little bit of pay. And then following his betrayal, Judas committed suicide and hanged himself because he could not repent of his sin, but he was driven to death for it. But Peter betrayed Jesus three times and sits in the misery of his own failure, Meanwhile, if any of the disciples remembered that Jesus must rise from the dead, which they do not seem to, they definitely did not remember that fact after three days of Jesus in the tomb. So the disciples, the state that they're under is that they sit dejected, leaderless, in danger of being captured, and wondering if everything they believed about Jesus was in fact a lie. This was the state of Jesus' disciples on the first day of the week. And really, it's hard to imagine a more sobering situation. But then something took place that would change the course of the world forever. Mary went to Jesus' tomb where Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped and prepared Jesus' body for burial, and they had laid him to rest. But when she arrived on the scene before daybreak, the stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb had been moved aside. And that was no small feat. A stone large enough to cover the entrance to this tomb would have taken many men to move. So Mary, in a state of shock, then ran to tell Peter and John what had happened. And I find her statement very curious here. How does she refer to Jesus? She calls him the Lord. Now, this is the Greek word kurios, which can simply mean master, but it's also used in the New Testament as the version of the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. That covenantal name of God, that's the name God gave to his people to use for him, Yahweh. Jesus, multiple times in the New Testament, declared himself to be Yahweh before the Pharisees. Every I am statement you see is Jesus declaring himself to be Yahweh, Almighty God. Now, often in the Gospels, Mary and the others have referred to Christ by calling him my Lord. They'll say, my Lord. But she didn't say that. She said, the Lord. So whether she meant to or not, I believe she rightly called Jesus, whom she still believed to be dead, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. And yet she thought someone had just moved the body. So mixed with this profession of lordship, she is still plagued with doubt and misunderstanding about what she has just witnessed. By making this profession, her conclusion of where he was should have been different. And yet it wasn't. Mary knew something was up, but clearly did not yet understand Jesus's words concerning what would happen after three days. Now, Peter and John, after hearing Mary's report, immediately ran to the tomb to see what was going on. And you have to wonder what was going through their minds as they ran. What has happened? Why would someone steal Jesus's body and not say anything? If the Jewish leader stole Jesus's body... It would be to ensure that no one made any claims that he had risen from the dead. Then they would just produce Jesus' body and say, no, he's dead. Why would you run to an empty tomb if the body you're looking for has already been taken away? Even if the body was taken, it was too late to catch any thieves. Furthermore, why would one of the disciples outrun the other to try to arrive there even faster? Splitting up and leaving your companion in the still dark hours is... Not generally a smart thing to do. So this level of haste, this level of excitement, it was pointless, it was odd, and it was really unnecessary. Unless even as they ran, they began to remember the words of Jesus. We can see that they are beginning to hope that what they dare not even mention, lest they be wrong, has indeed occurred. So the anticipation builds in the text as John outruns Peter and arrives at the tomb first. Now, he waits for Peter to arrive before entering, but he does look into the tomb. And there sitting in the tomb are the linen cloths, the burial cloths used to wrap a body before burial. But these were not any old unused burial linens. John tells us that these were the linen cloths. So as John waited on Peter, there are a couple things he likely noticed. First, there was no smell of death that normally accompanies a decaying body after three days. Second, if someone stole the body of Jesus, why on earth would they unwrap a decaying body and leave the linen cloths behind? I think there's shock and there's hope beginning to arise in John as he sits there and tries to contemplate the events which really defy any normal explanation. Well, then Peter arrives and he, too, must have noticed the lack of smell and the oddity of the burial clothes still sitting there in the tomb. Not only were the bits of cloth there, but they were left with some care as well. We're told they are folded. One Puritan, Matthew Henry, writes that robbers of tombs have been known to take away the clothes and leave the body. But none ever, none ever took away the body and left the clothes especially when it was fine linen and new, which is what they would have used to wrap Jesus' body. So if Jesus' body was stolen, then not only were the thieves crazy for unwrapping him, but they were even crazier for placing the cloths down neatly folded and leaving them. And as John also entered into the tomb, Peter began to arrive at the same conclusion that was already running through the mind of John. Jesus' body was not there because he was risen. Now, ironically, many people say that seeing is believing. But in this situation, it was seeing everything except the body of Jesus that led them to remember his words about rising again and which led them to believe. And it was at this moment that they understood finally that Jesus was risen. So that which began as this long shot hope and shock after hearing the report of Mary Magdalene, it concluded with faith in the Son of God. Jesus Christ. The truth blindsided them, it shocked them, and it put them into a state of wonder. The glory of the risen Son of God, even when he was not there, led them to faith. Well, there is no single event in history as important as the resurrection of Jesus. The great Scottish reformer, John Knox, he believed the resurrection to be the the single chief article of the Christian faith. And it's so crucial to us that even Calvary is worthless without the resurrection. The two go together and you can't separate one from the other without losing the efficacy of them both. So imagine Christ dying on the cross but remaining under the power of sin and death. That would mean that Jesus was just a man and that death was the final victor. But this morning we celebrate the fact that Christ is risen. And as a result of his resurrection, there are many implications for the believer. We're going to look at three implications of the resurrection. The validity, the victory, and the vivification. I was on an alliteration thing, sorry. Uh, first, let's look at validity. Now, I went to the best place possible to find a definition. According to Google, the definition of validity is the quality of being logically or factually sound. So what I want us to look at here is the validity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not silent on the type of Messiah or the type of Savior the Messiah would be. Isaiah 53 in particular speaks of the sacrificial death which God's anointed one would undergo for the salvation of his people. And the lessons really run throughout the Old Testament and build upon another most visibly in the sacrificial system and the Passover. So we see a very clear picture of what Christ would have to do. Well, the resurrection is something that is much more hidden in the Old Testament. But even then, some Jews understood that there would one day be a bodily resurrection for all people. An example of this comes from John 11. After Lazarus's death, Jesus told Martha that Lazarus would rise again. Well, she didn't quite understand, and she responded saying, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Well, she did not understand that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead right then, but she knew that one day there would be a general resurrection. But Jesus' response is even more important for us to understand how he rose from the dead. He turns to Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus raised Lazarus and Jairus' daughter from the dead. Unlike the other prophets in the Old Testament who raised people from the dead by the power of another, God, Jesus raised them by his own power. So he is life itself, and as such, he has the power to lay down his life and to take it back up again, because no grave can hold the Lord. He is the master over resurrection and life. Even the timing of Jesus' death was foretold. By the scriptures, as early as John chapter two, Jesus told the Jews at the temple, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. In how many days? In three days. The implication is that Jesus is the true temple. And the irony of all of this is that by killing Jesus, the Jews actually helped accomplish the plan of salvation, just not in the way that they thought. Jesus also tells us the manner and the timing of his death in Luke nine. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So the various gospel accounts all mention the manner of his death, how long he would be dead and that he would rise again. And so everything that was foretold came to pass in accordance with the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. And while I don't have time to make a full extended historical defense of the resurrection here, I do want us to note a couple of things. Look at how John records this passage. If John wanted to make up this great religion and a story to start it off of about how Jesus rose from the dead, he made some pretty bad errors (laughs) in how he started. First, he made women the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. Now, in that day, the testimony of women was not considered reliable, it was not the testimony you would want to start a new religion. They would be a horrible first choice if John made all this up. Second, if you were writing something, why would you want to make yourself look bad? Let's be honest here. If you're reading through, Peter and John both are shocked that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do. He told them he would rise again, and they were not even looking for or thinking about that possibility at this point. To be quite frank, they come off as rather slow, unbelieving, and a little dumbfounded in this text. Well, these simple facts from these ten verses lend a great deal of validity to the legitimacy of Christ's resurrection. Well, the second implication is victory, the second V. Christ's victory is totally and completely comprehensive. It accomplishes everything for which it was meant to accomplish. One theologian named Douglas Kelly says that glorious victory over the fall of Adam and all its tragic consequences, that is the far-reaching significance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, his grand victory is a grand reversal of everything that is bad and fallen and sinful. And along with that, we see also that Satan and the demonic powers were crushed under the feet of Christ. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The wrath of God for the sin of his people was perfectly satisfied. Well, how do we know that? Because if not, Jesus would still be in the tomb. Douglas Kelly again says, if Jesus were still physically dead, it would mean that God the Father had not accepted his holy life and atoning death is satisfactory. Death was conquered by the one who had the power to come back from the dead under his own power. And so the implication for believers is that sin and death are thoroughly and comprehensively destroyed, being nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb with Christ. While Christ rose again, death and sin are forever defeated. So we really see a paradox going on. John Owen understood this well when he named his great work on the atonement, the death of death, In the death of Christ, by dying, Jesus became master over death. And the true definition of victory in this life is really, or excuse me, let me restart that. The true definition of victory is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. One other aspect of the victory of the resurrection is that it is also the victory of the people of God. Our salvation means that Christ has united himself to us. And as such, we share in his victory. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, have we earned or aided in any part of this resurrection victory? Absolutely not. But as we are in Christ, we are given the victory because of him. So what was certain defeat and death for us under the crushing weight of our sin and God's just and holy wrath upon us is transformed into victory and freedom through the finished and atoning work of Christ. The third implication of the resurrection is our vivification or being made alive again, being made into a new man. Now, the scripture speaks repeatedly of our old natures being put to death with Christ on the cross. Our old man was placed in the tomb next to Christ and it is now dead and gone. And while remnants of that old nature fight on until we die, legally speaking, before God we are justified and completely and totally clean now. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus also marks the break from our sinful natures and bondage to death. It places us into the realm of new life with Christ rather than death. Paul explains this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Union with Christ means that his efficacious death, pay for all of your sin and put that old man in the grave. But his resurrection bears the same efficacy in producing new life and ensuring the creation of the new person within you. But the resurrection is not just a current spiritual one although we do have spiritual resurrection now but we will one day receive resurrected bodies that will be glorified just like Christ's Romans 8:11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Jesus or Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you So are you seeing the pattern Jesus' death means your death to sin, while his resurrection means your resurrection to new life. Our connection with Christ is total and inseparable. And as such, we have the certain hope of new bodies. Paul went so far as to rebuke anyone who denied that fact. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has, been, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain And your faith is in vain. We might as well all walk out of here right now if that's the case. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a thing to celebrate once a year. It is the central element of the entire Christian faith, without which our faith would be pointless. Christians would be the most foolish people in the world. The Bible would be useless and our God would be powerless or non-existent. The life and death of Christ are incomplete without the consummation of the resurrection from the dead. And so in the resurrection, we see the victory of the Son of God over all things. Well, let's wrap this up. When you say he is risen on Easter, do you realize what you're really saying? You are proclaiming the core hope of the gospel in three words. The resurrection of Christ is everything to the believer because it has ensured everything for the believer. It is the foundation and basis not only of our faith, but also of our hope of future glory and resurrected bodies before the face of Christ. So because Jesus is risen, you must believe. And we believe in the resurrection because it is biblically valid. It gives us victory in Christ and it brings us to new life spiritually now and bodily on the last day. So don't think about the empty tomb and be dumbfounded. Don't think about it and be blindsided. Don't think about the resurrection and hesitate to truly believe it in your heart. Look on the tomb of Christ with eyes of faith and see that it is empty. Death had no hold over our Lord. The resurrection is not a fairy tale. It is the reality of a king who would lay down his life for the good of his children, yes, But more than that, would also rise again from the dead for his children. So do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? Do you understand that the resurrection was the most important event in the history of mankind? To deny the resurrection is to deny Christ. So see the empty tomb and rejoice in the risen Lord. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the hope of the gospel. Rejoice in the God of your salvation because he is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you praise this morning for you are the living God, the God who has power to lay down his life and to take it up once again. And you didn't just do it for yourself or for your own glory, though it is for your glory. But you did it that you might bring us to newness of life so that your glory might be displayed even more powerfully. Lord, we rejoice in this this morning and help us to carry that joy with us throughout the week. For you are our risen Lord. Amen.